2: The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine and this is Slate Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of September 8th, 2014. On this week's show, we'll talk about TMZ's release of video showing Ray Rice punching his wife and the Baltimore Ravens' decision to cut him from the team. We'll also be joined by our Slate colleague, Jamel Bowie, To discuss Atlanta Hawks owner Bruce Levinson's decision to put his team up for sale due to an email he sent in 2012 that said, in part, that the team's black crowd scared away the whites, and there are simply not enough affluent black fans to build a significant season ticket base. Finally, we'll have an interview with Josh Keefe, who claims to be the worst quarterback in the history of high school football. We are recording this week's show from the annual Slate Retreat in New New York, more specifically. We are recording this week's show from our producer Mike Vuolo's hotel room. It's a pleasure to all be in one place. I can tell you with great confidence that Mike Pesca is wearing the Planet Money t-shirt today. I wouldn't have been able to tell you that last week. It's great to see you, Mike. Or any t-shirt at all. No. Yes. (laughs) Uh, How are you, Mike? I'm good. My chest is well. Thank you. (laughs) How are you, Josh? You don't even answer. I'm looking at you. I know the answer. I'm spark- You're great. My eyes are sparkling just yeah. to be in your presence. And uh, Stefan Patsis is here, author of a books, Word Freak, A Few Seconds of Panic, Friday Sports Correspondent, Friend, PRs, All Things Considered, here in Mohonk. How are you, Stephen? I'm,
3: I don't have a Planet Money T-shirt. That's right,
2: because
0: he did not pay the required twenty-five dollars. Yeah.
2: Because he is not a supporter of one of our great public radio programs. Um, help set the scene for us, Mike, and this room. You, are, you kind of have a view out the window. Mm-hmm. Of, uh, of beautiful New Paltz. Tell, uh, tell our listeners you know, the scene of, mm-hmm. of this uh, of this makeshift recording studio.
0: The clouds are cumulonimbus. The mountains recede into the distance. The leaves, the greenery is lush and verdant. The sunlight? The sunlight resplendent as it sparkles upon the hardworking people in the foothills of either the Catskills, (laughs) Appalachians, whatever the hell they name this mountain (laughs) chain that keeps changing. It's a really, really lovely bucolic setting. And you know what they say about New Paltz. It is the gateway to Poughkeepsie.
2: They do say that. And our soundboard is on top of a refrigerator, which leads me to uh, make an announcement that our audio is going to sound a little bit, Different this week, cool. um, a it's little, a little cold, a little bit like a subterranean refrigerator sound. Um, so hopefully that'll be an improvement on our usual quality. But if not, um, just bear with us and enjoy the new pulse, uh, dappled sunlight, and the foothills of whatever mountain range ran. All right, so we were planning on talking about week one of the NFL season, what happened in the openers. Uh, admittedly, n- none of us or most of us watched the games, Pesca got a little bit of jets in. But then with uh, this Ray Rice news, the tape coming out, um the action in those games seems pretty insignificant. We'll have a lot of time to talk about what happens on the field through the rest of the season. Um but, you know, today I think you know we should really focus on this Rice case. And just to take you back to July, the NFL suspended him for two games after the release of casino surveillance footage. It showed him dragging Janae Palmer then his fiance, now his wife, showed him dragging her unconscious from an elevator. Commissioner Roger Goodell said at the time, the league is an entity that depends on integrity and in the confidence of the public. We simply cannot tolerate conduct that endangers others or reflects negatively on our game. Now, a month and a half later, we've seen the video, TMZ has released it, of what happened inside that casino elevator. You can see Rice punching Palmer once. You see her um, kind of Falling back, and then you see him punching her in the face again, knocking her cold. It's incredibly disturbing. It's horrifying, this video footage. It's impossible to watch it and feel like a two game suspension was appropriate. Roger Goodell said, you know, a couple weeks ago now that I made a mistake. I should have suspended him for longer. Um, new policies in place for the NFL, six games for a first offense of domestic violence. But then this video comes out completely changes our perception of what happened, changes our perception of Ray Rice, and changed the Ravens' perception of what was best to do in this situation, maybe for, um, because they found some shred of humanity, maybe because it was for public re- relations reasons. But Ray Rice has now been cut by the team. He's gone. Um, Stefan, what is your sense of how all this happened and why it happened? Well, I think this
3: was inevitable. How possibly could the Baltimore Ravens and the NFL allow this guy to continue on their team? Even if you adopt the most cynical perspective that this is purely for public relations reasons and they told Ray Rice privately, hey, we've got to do this. It looks bad. The video makes this seem far worse than what you said. Even if you take the most cynical approach here, it's hard to come to a conclusion other than they had no choice.
0: Well, I think what we're hearing now, which may or may not be true, is that uh, Ray Rice told a different story than what the videotape is revealing. Now, that shouldn't matter, because the story, what story could he have told? She hit me first. That's not a story. That's not a story that justifies spousal abuse or domestic abuse. You know, I do think in the backdrop against the kind of mindset we're dealing in the NFL, and a lot of this was revealed. I read a Jane McManus story in ESPNW, which kind of laid out how Goodell came to realize he gave too little of a punishment. He met with uh, leaders. He met with, with women right leaders, he met met with some uh, former players who are now preachers, and you know he kind of it dawned on him because of the huge public outrage, because of these meetings, that he had blown it, that he didn't get the issue, that he was doing things like citing Ray Rice's character, or how uh, sorry he was, or that the uh, now wife stands with him, or that the courts didn't even find him, uh, you know, throw him in jail. You know, all that stuff is actually immaterial, if you really know anything about the the problem of domestic violence. I don't know, really, though, from a purely logical standpoint, I take your point, Stefan, if you're to have the most cynical viewing it's became too much of a PR nightmare I don't know from a logical standpoint why except for the fact this shocks us on a visceral level why this actually changes facts because even if Ray Rice like I said was saying she started it it's such a non-excuse in fact it's such an insult that almost damns him worse so now we actually saw what must have happened in order for the woman to have been unconscious you
3: know now is the time how does this to even reinforce the problem with what happened? The video. It's like you need some sort of confirmation that a woman who is dragged out of an elevator unconscious, that something was done to her. We knew something was done to her. She was unconscious.
2: Yeah. We saw this with Donald Sterling, where he has a history of racist remarks. They're reported, well documented, in many different reliable sources and court records. We also have his history of not only racist talk, but racist actions, um, discrimination against minorities. And his tenure is basically a slumlord. And then this tape comes out, again, TMZ, where he's saying things to his mistress or his girlfriend or whatever. And that completely changes perception. It completely changes actions. So in recent sports history, we've had something analogous happen. But I agree with you, Mike, that it shouldn't be this standard of evidence. And the fact that now the Ravens and the NFL seem to recognize that he should be punished more severe, severely. He should be off the team. It's revelatory of human nature. It's revelatory of yeah. business practice. But it's something that we should recognize in this behavior that should be changed like societally.
0: Yeah, and, and now the new standard is a, a more significant suspension and then a one-year ban upon second offense. Now, the San Francisco player who is subject to the new – Ray McDonald. Right. McDonald, there's no clamor for him to be thrown off the team. Although, you know, it, perhaps it's that the circumstances are different. You know, there was no unconscious woman in the McDonald case. I think it's mostly a little bit that Ray McDonald is far more of an obscure player than Ray Rice, but I think it's almost entirely that there's a videotape of Ray Rice.
3: Let's broaden this a little bit and talk about the culpability of Roger Goodell, the commissioner of the NFL. And this, the Baltimore Ravens team organization and how this played itself out. You know, people are going to discuss whether the NFL actually had seen this video. That was a huge topic of conversation on Monday morning. How is it possible that they didn't see it? The lawyers for Rice had it. There were, you know, reports on Monday morning that Chris Mortensen, Adam Schefter, Peter King, other top reporters who at the time had reported that the NFL had seen the video. Clearly, they have sources inside the NFL that ended up getting walked back now with the NFL saying, oh, we didn't see the video. So there's a credibility problem here. And at what point does Roger Goodell get held accountable for the lack of credibility? At what point do we see through what the league and the Ravens did? Our friend uh, Bruce Arthur up in, in in Canada tweeted, the Ravens enable Ray Rice, cover for Ray Rice, excuse Ray Rice, and once the video comes out, they cut Ray Rice. Bravo, guys.
2: Yeah, and starting today, really, there was a little bit of condemnation of John Harbaugh essentially saying, it is what it is. You know, he's suspended, we'll move on acting like it was turf toe. Yeah. uh,
3: Indistinguishable
0: statements from if he had
3: been suspended for Adderall. Even worse, at one point, the Ravens tweeted, not having Ray for the first two games is significant.
2: Yeah. So I think attention has started to focus more on the Ravens and the Ravens obviously reacted by releasing the player. But prior to that, it has really all been on Goodell. Every kind of suspension with the drug policy, with Past instances of domestic abuse with Michael Vick and dogfighting. It's all been on Goodell as a hanging judge and the appropriateness of his behavior. And, you know, should he be reined in? Is it accurate what he's doing? Is it appropriate? And now I think Bill Simmons tweets today the Ravens should cut Ray Rice. It's like on the Ravens. People are starting to look at these individual teams and saying, you know it's not just on the commissioner to decide if it's reasonable for a guy to still be on a team, so I think this conversation is now going to be going on from multiple directions. Goodell is certainly not going to be protected from public opinion here, but you know obviously neither are the ravens
0: now with the it's just on the ravens, I was thinking i mean. In the sports context, our podcast is Hang Up and Listen, not Will the Defendant Please Rise. But, you know, one of the reasons why Goodell cited is like, why are they on me? Why aren't they on the prosecutor? I mean, this is what he said to some of the activists. And the activists said, because you're identifiable and they know your face from TV and they don't know the Atlantic City prosecutor, his face from TV. But I was talking to Emily Bazelon. Like, is is it ridiculous that both the prosecutor asked for a deferred prosecution and a program he could go into? Is it ridiculous that the judge accepted that? Working backwards, the judge is always going to accept that. He can say no, that's too lenient, but courts would not work if you rejected kind of pro forma, horribly enough pro forma recommendations of prosecutors. And she said, this is the sort of situation that was like invented for a deferred prosecution. It all the things that the Raven cited. It was his. First offense, there doesn't seem to be a pattern. You know, he expressed that he was remorseful. The victim now married him. I don't know actually if the courts take that into account. That's a little problematic. But I would be fine if the NFL, maybe just the Ravens part of the NFL, were a little harsher on domestic abusers than the courts are. Of course, the NFL has a greater capacity to do so than, you know, our
3: overwhelmed court system. And there's a distinction that we have to draw between what happens in a court of law and what a private business can do. Mm-hmm. They're not connected, nor should they be. And I think people that say, well, he pled out or was granted this suspended sentence by a judge, that means that he should suffer no consequences from this private business. Wrong. Businesses can do whatever they want to employees for whatever kinds of behavior they uh, display.
2: So I think you can never go wrong, at least in recent years, banking on the NFL's ability to shrug off bad publicity and for people to want to tune into the red zone channel the next week, the level of vitriol and outrage directed towards the league and towards the Ravens today and the hours prior to the team releasing Ray Rice was acute and it was harsher, I think, than anything that I can remember. The kind of conversation around concussions has been more diffuse. It's existential for the NFL, but it's not something where you could point to a specific day and a specific outrage. Or a video clip. Or a video <laughs> clip. Do we think that this is something that will continue to persist, that will stand out, that the conversation will continue around Goodell and around whether he should continue to be commissioner and um, just about his tenure as a whole? Or as of next week, is the conversation going to be around whether the Patriots can bounce back in week two and whether Matt Ryan can you know, still be on pace for – the NFL yardage record.
0: Well, I, we all know that we don't have to bifurcate those things in our head. Like I actually am interested in all the football <laughs> questions you
2: asked, but of course this is bigger and more serious. We did make a decision not to talk about the games this week. And you know, be, as right. time goes on, it's not going to be like, we're going to talk about Ray Rice and whether what the NFL did was right. Right. Every week, to the exclusion of talking about on right. stuff, And it's
0: not because we feel we have to; like we want to talk about the. Yeah, NFL. They're not we are NFL fans, right? You know, I think that at this moment, in the last since we heard this news in the last two hours, the NFL is in a better position than they are since that Ray Rice press conference. Essentially, at least they'll see it like that, and the NFL's broadcast partners, its million dollar, billion dollar business partners, are sighing, breathing a sigh of relief that they could, that they took this issue off the table. The other thing it won't do is convince roger goodell to do anything differently like roger goodell is like wow i always get patted on the back when i'm the toughest justice east of the west river and in the one instance i tried to show sympathy everyone hated it i'm just gonna come down with harsher and harsher fines for everything from
3: now on but at some point i think this is the biggest question of all at some point what does it take for the nfl's business to be affected negatively by this. I mean, this has been nothing but a parade of stories like these. I mean, this one obviously stands out. And like you said, Josh, the level of rage seems to be higher than for anything else. But we're talking about drug policies. We're talking about the bullying scandal. We're talking about and it is one after another after another. At what point do NFL owners have to say, We have a problem with the image of our product, and the person that is responsible for leading and creating this image is the commissioner. And even if it's for, you know, this is what businesses do. They fire chief executives because they have determined that the impression of their business is being harmed by a person's presence and Roger Goodell is a figurehead for this league. He made $44 million last year, and that did not look very good for the NFL either. At what point, you know, we've talked about how people are watching football differently because of concussions and the knowledge of what these athletes are doing to each other on the field. At what point do people just look at the NFL and conjure these incredibly negative images of
2: this business? You started to hear a little bit from current players today who are like, I don't want to be associated with that asshole, Ray Rice. And I don't want to be associated with that asshole, Roger Goodell. Like it seemed like players were really fed up. The majority of NFL players who are, you know, being kind of stained by this idea that, you know, NFL players are all domestic abusers and the idea that the league is out of control and something must be done. And just this feeling that the league is just screwing this up and that Everyone is kind of taking the punishment and every, everyone in the league is being viewed in this negative light. And you're starting to hear players who are often reticent to speak out on issues like this, I think, feeling like it's time and they need to do that.
0: But I think they're breathing a sigh of relief, too, because I think that the basic general idea is that the NFL is great. And when something bad happens, we need to remove that stain because we got this great thing going. And that hasn't changed.
2: Well, one and one small pushback on something you said earlier with Goodell and leniency. We are um, kind of in the middle of a negotiation to pare back the NFL drug policy. Josh Gordon suspended for a year because of an accumulation of what seemed like recreational Drug use, like barely over the allowable mm-hmm. limit for marijuana, also had a, a DWI. But I think the reason that that's being paired back. And the idea that maybe there should be more leniency there is, like, the comparison to the Ray Rice thing. That's why it came up, is that Goodell was so— But that's not a Goodell decision. I mean, these are negotiated in the
0: bargaining agreement, the drug rules. So that's a but little to bit say that. Than- his, but to
2: say that his answer is going to be, I'm going to be tougher on everything, I think the, the actual answer is, I'm going to be tougher— on the things that are perceived to be the worst. Yeah. And if I'm really tough on marijuana use, and I, it's like actually a bigger punishment than for domestic abuse, then that's gonna be perceived as, as horrible. Okay, so maybe ratcheting down the marijuana uh, punishments will make him be perceived as tougher on the other
0: stuff. And then exactly. what he really wants to be is tough and perceived as tough.
3: But there's an emperor's new clothes problem here with, the, and, and I think it's brought to light in, in really graphic ways by by what's happening with Ray Rice. That we can't really believe the NFL now, and the NFL now wants, now is the now. time. <laughs> well, we can't really believe the NFL at all. Um, the, League of denial. <laughs> League of Denial, absolutely. From drug use, from steroids, from concussions. What cheerleader the, pay? Cheerleader pay. I mean, where is the credibility at this point? Adam Silver stood up after the after the Donald Sterling stuff and came off as sincere. It's hard to really view Roger Goodell as sincere. The, the, NFL wants good hair, to, with the NFL wants to pretend that it's a moral arbiter and that we have a history in America of looking to sports leagues to set sort of a moral tone, whether it's segregation or drug use. But I think the NFL is losing a ton of credibility here.
2: All right. I'm sure we'll be talking about this in the weeks to come and seeing if uh, Roger Goodell is as Teflon as he has been in the past. All right. We have a live show to announce. It's October 8th at Galapagos Art Space in Brooklyn. Uh, it's part of New York Super Week. And you can get tickets at slate.com slash hangup super It's $20 a ticket and it's 30% off for Slate Plus members. Um, I'd also like to um, tout an event from our friends at Gulf. They have a varsity letters reading series that Stefan I know has done in the past. It's a really awesome series, and it's free, which is great. Um, they have one coming up on September 11th this week, and it's on football. And a bunch of writers, including friend of the podcast, Alex Belth, um, are going to be reading from a Library of America, collection, football, great writing about the national sport. Um, it's at 7 p.m. on September 11th. It's on Bleecker Street, 158 to be exact. Um, you should check it out. On Sunday, NBA Commissioner Adam Silver announced that Bruce Levinson, the majority owner of the Atlanta Hawks, was selling his controlling interest in the team on account of an inappropriate and offensive email he sent in 2012. That email, which Levinson sent to Hawks GM Danny Ferry and his fellow owners, describes the racial composition of the team's fan base and fan experience, noting that crowds are 70% black, that the cheerleaders are black, and that the in-arena soundtrack is hip-hop. He writes... My theory is that the black crowd scared away the whites and there are simply not enough affluent black fans to build a significant season ticket base. He goes on to say, I want some white cheerleaders. And while I don't care what the color of the artist is, I want the music to be music familiar to a 40 year old white guy. If that's our season ticket demo. I've also balked when every fan picked out of the crowd to shoot shots in some timeout contest is black. I have even bitched that the kiss cam is too black. Uh, Joining us now... To discuss the Bruce Levinson email, the uh, fallout from it is Jamel Bowie, our Slate colleague, writes about race, politics, and policy. Hello, Jamel. Hello, Josh. Um, And you've written about Donald Sterling for Slate. And the piece that you wrote back then was very interesting, talking about the difference in how the NBA uh, punished him for what he said. And when that became public and was an embarrassment to the league— versus what he had done in right. terms of systematically discriminating against minorities in a long career, essentially as a slumlord. Right. So how do you feel like this Levinson case shows maybe how the NBA has changed it soon or has not? So it's interesting, because this
4: Levinson letter is, I think, only half racist. The first half where he discusses sort of the problems of perception, I think is actually pretty on point. Um, he He notes that many of the white uh, customers, they see large crowds of black people and assume danger or one does not exist. Um, they are actively discriminating against the black customers and in, in, in the sense that they don't want to attend. And he's, I think he's actually makes a perfectly fine and reasonable point about how perceptions of sort of black criminality and black danger um, lead white consumers to sort of abandon something that seems too black. And you see something similar in all sorts of circumstances. Um, Earlier in the summer or last month, when uh, the Ferguson uh, story was happening, there was a a survey done somewhere uh, that showed that when you ask African Americans what constitutes a diverse crowd, they will say half black and then half white, or like half you know minority and half white. When you ask whites the same question, they'll say ten percent black. And so that's I think his his diagnosis of that um, is an illustration of this sort of like sociological fact. The letter gets racist when he starts to uh, offer solutions <laughs> to the problem. When he says essentially that we need to make everything seem less black for this to be fixed, and I think that you know, trying to scrub away at the blackness of the of the fan base of the people who attend the games is a little racist because it, it treats their blackness as the problem and not sort of the racist response of um, potential white consumers as as the issue here.
0: Yeah. Um, and, and I should also say that, you know, there's one point in the letter where he decries the fact that the arena is perceived as unsafe. It's not unsafe. And he says, what's his diagnosis for why it's perceived as unsafe? Racism, right? So, like Sterling, he says, Something akin to I don't want to be racist. I think that he does mean it more, at least in that one instance. Yes, that was the proper diagnosis to think the safe arena isn't safe and people from the suburbs are staying away. And I do think that there's large parts of the letter that are clearly racist. In a second, we'll get to I don't believe just the official line on why the team is being sold and. What what his motivations are don't know the answers, but I want to ask you so Kareem Abdul Jabbar And he's just the most prominent person to sort of make this argument said he's not being racist. He's being a businessman now Let's posit that those two aren't mutually exclusive, but you're going to hear so many people make the argument that, look, he's trying to increase his business. There are a bunch of strategies that he could do to increase his business, and this is a rational uh, act on the part of someone who's looking to increase the bottom line. What would you say
4: to that? I would say that there's more than one way to increase the bottom line, right, that there. are If you want to get more season ticket holders, if you want to increase your revenue that way, you don't only have to aim at middle-aged white guys. You can aim at sort of Atlanta's much younger white demographic that's sort of moving in from other parts of the country. You can more heavily market and more aggressively market to uh, the very large population of affluent African-Americans in Atlanta, which is – I think he he understates quite a bit. What What makes the letter racist, or makes his part racist, is that he he immediately jumps from we have this perceptual problem and let 's essentially indulge those people with that with those views and cater to them, which I think is just unnecessary
3: and it seems that he does have those views too one strategy that would have been far more palatable would have been for him to acknowledge that we have one of the most progressive diverse fan bases in all of american sports and how can we build upon that to create a truly diverse arena clearly there are empty seats in atlanta i mean maybe the problem isn't that there are a lot of black people filling those seats and maybe the problem isn't that black people don't spend as much money as white people on food and beverage which is what he said in part of the email maybe the problem is your food sucks or your drinks suck or the environment that you're doing something inside that arena that isn't appealing to everybody. If Levinson had come at this the opposite way, that we are incredibly progressive and we're incredibly successful at doing something that few franchises in this sport where ticket prices are so high have been unable to do, which is to attract a huge African-American fan base, he would have been on much safer
0: footing. I would say that 90-something percent of white-owned businesses faced with this problem are going to actually go with this sort of solution. The difference being it's not the NBA, meaning it's not, you know, overwhelmingly majority black working base, also powerful black working base, also with the history of Sterling. Also, that doesn't mean they're right to say that, look, we have this perception that, you know, that white people feel unsafe.
2: Well, I think, and anyone pipe up if you disagree, I wouldn't have been surprised if this came out and there was a sensitivity training required, there was a six month suspension. We're talking about leagues and punishments a lot today, but um, I think maybe what you were alluding to before, Mike, this guy Levinson seems to have wanted to sell the team since 2011. There was kind of an aborted attempt to do so and Sterling's punishment for, um, you know, his racist comments for being drummed out of the league was a $2 billion paycheck from Steve Ballmer. And so this is an opportunity for this guy to cash out. I'm not saying that he intentionally leaked this email to try to get a billion dollar payout. But, you know, it seems like he's taken one possible avenue. And we don't know if the NBA told him you have to sell the team. But um, it, it wouldn't surprise me if Levinson, you know, wasn't, you know, unhappy to get the the money here. Jamel, what do you think? Do you think
0: this is one of those things where we should say, Hey, let's have a a satisfactory outcome would be a suspension and let's have a conversation. Or is it a good thing that this guy immediately says, well, I'm clearly not suitable to be an owner. Take his motivations for what they are.
4: If, if this were, if this were a case of sort of like league punishment, um, I would say making himself a team is, Really not necessary, I think. Yeah, just some sensitivity training, and and you know, I, I think really this is the case where slap on the wrist is totally appropriate. I, it's not that I'm like unhappy with them selling the team. I kind yeah. of don't really care either way. But in my in my role as an analyst, I think selling the team is like a bit of an overreaction to to the situation.
0: Although I do got to say sensitivity training to me sounds like phrase it differently, and I think the sensitivity <laughs> should be more like think about it differently, all our owners, maybe that would be good. all our owners, other owners, other prominent people in this business let's think of different ways other than to whiten up the fan base or whatever our customer base is to appeal to uh, perceived white people
3: but let's put this into some historical context too, Mike. This issue goes back in the NBA to the 1970s. I mean the perception then was that the league was too black, it was too thuggish when david Stern came in as commissioner, part of his business platform was to erase these perceptions of the NBA. And this issue has come up over and over again in the last 30 years. You think about the 90s and Dave Zirin put some of this stuff together in a post uh, that was up on The Nation on Monday um, about how, look, in the 1990s, there were issues about how black players were dressing, about cornrows, Allen Iverson had tattoos airbrushed out of a photograph that was in an NBA magazine. Stern instituted a dress code. The question then becomes, is there some sort of latent institutional racism that pops up in cases like this one and exposes itself in emails written by guys like Levinson? I think the fundamental tension of especially the NBA, but also the
0: NFL, is this tension. I mean, it's the idea of... Your customer base being of a wildly different demographic than your playing base. And also, it attracts a lot of, uh, you know, obviously, young black people are going to be into basketball. Does that dissuade the middle-aged white people? If it does, what do you do? Is that changing? I mean, these are all questions that I think so many things that we ever deal with in basketball – even talking about Ray Rice. I think that that is an underlying issue with the Ray Rice sanctions and why Goodell is such a hanging judge. It's some very similar issues, you know, how to corral these these young, wealthy black men.
2: Um, Jamal, maybe we can wrap up with a larger point about Atlanta and an issue that has been, you know, circulating around for a couple of years now is the Braves moving to Cobb County, which I guess is a suburb exurb in Atlanta. They've been playing in Turner Field, which was built for the 1996 Olympics. And now you have the team, you know, 18 years later, moving to Cobb County, inaccessible to public transportation. There's $400 million in public funding to get the stadium out in a place that is predominantly white away from um, the inner city. And so I think we have to also... Keep that in mind about, um, you know, sports in Atlanta. This, is, this Hawks thing is part of a bigger story. Right. The Atlanta metropolitan area is incredibly segregated, and there's sort of a very long history in Atlanta
4: of using things like sports stadiums, using designing public transportation in such a way as to avoid, essentially, the movement of um, black people from the city into the suburbs and the exurbs. I mean, the nickname for MARTA, the um, Atlanta area transit system, is, I think, I may have this wrong but i think it's some, roughly similar to moving africans around you know atlanta it's like it's it's public transportation it's heavily associated with black people in the area and so the decision to move the stadium to Cobb county makes total sense within that sort of like context of kind of not even not even thinly veiled racism and if whoever ends up owning the hawks takes a similar step, or it takes uh, uh, steps towards making the franchise seem more white. Again, given the kind of racial stew of the Atlanta area, it's depressing, but almost kind of expected.
2: Jamel Bowie uh, writes about race, politics, policy for Slate. Thank you for joining us in Mike Folo's hotel room. <laughs> Thank you for having me. A couple of weeks ago, we ran a piece on Slate called I Was the Worst High School Quarterback Ever. In that story, the writer Josh Keefe talks about what it was like to lose every game of his career and what lessons, if any, he learned from getting destroyed on the football field. I interviewed Josh for a bonus segment for our Slate Plus members. There a couple of weeks ago. We're going to play that interview now as a bit of a taste of what you can get if you do subscribe to Slate Plus, and you can do that at slate.com slash plus. And let us now roll that interview with Josh Keefe. How's it going, Josh? Good, good. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Sure. And as people might know or might not know, writers do not typically write the headlines of their stories. Sometimes the editor can push it a little bit. But this was the subject line of the pitch you sent me. You're a freelancer. It was, worst high school quarterback in American history. So that was the gist of it from the beginning. I did not force you to put a headline that you didn't want. So tell us, how long have you been thinking about this story idea, and how long have you thought that you might be the worst high school quarterback in American history? <laughs> well, I've been thinking of, about it since I played. You know, I mean, it, was,
1: it, it, it didn't dawn on me later that I was bad. I, I knew in the moment that I was
2: pretty bad. And this was in the early 2000s.
1: Yeah, sorry, this is, uh, it's, I graduated high school in 2003, so, I mean, that's in the spring, so my final season was the 2002 season, and uh, yeah, I mean, I knew we were really bad, and I also knew that we were playing in probably, this is an Eastern Maine Class C, which at the time was the smallest class that had football. I knew I was, you know, we were the worst team in what probably was just about the worst area to play football in the country in terms of talent level. And I knew I was pretty pretty bad, um, and I could tell. You know, I threw a lot of picks and didn't really. We didn't score, and we got crushed every game. And I think later on it occurred to me, yeah, uh, yeah. I don't know if anyone's lost as many as much as I have, and if they have lost, um, I lost. Oh, I went zero twenty three as a starter. If they have lost, I don't think they would actually be as bad uh, at quarterback as I was. So I started really last fall trying to interview some former guys I played with, some coaches. Uh, and really wanted to write something about it. But I've been thinking about it for years, you know, kind of uh, just mulling around in my head about, you know, how bad I was. But finally, I think it's more of an exorcism than anything. It's like my own form of therapy to write it.
2: Right. So when I've been telling people about this story and about your claim they're the worst high school quarterback ever, people are a little skeptical. But then the credentials are pretty impeccable. <laughs> You went and oh, 23 mm-hmm. As you said, this was in Class C in Maine against pretty weak competition. Part of a school-wide run of 41 straight losses. During your senior year, when you should have been at the height of your powers, your team scored 21 total points. Mm-hmm. It's It's a pretty convincing dossier. And you actually found and talked to other quarterbacks in high school who never won a game. And you found... Um, that you were worse than any of them as well.
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, I I talked to um, a couple people who were part of you know losing streaks that were like historic. Chris Kelly, who is uh, the coach of Glasscock County High School in Georgia, um, was a quarterback for the beginning of a 82 consecutive losses, which is the longest streak in the country from 1990 to 1999. Yeah, I mean, he lost, uh, he started for three years and lost every single game, and, and they got killed. But, you know, hearing him talk, I mean, he played He played baseball in college. Um, it was pretty obvious he was a better athlete than me. Like, in spite of the losses, like, I think you, you plug him into my situation, he might have won a game. Or um, another guy I talked to was Al Gunderson, who was a quarterback for the first part of Sturgis, South Dakota's 79 consecutive losses, um, and he lost every game he started. Um, but talking to him he, he was six four he could throw you know they threw fifty times a game um you know there 's no way I, I could have and any coach would have ever thought that the solution to us losing was to have me
2: throw more i mean that would have never never happened so how did you end up as the quarterback then? You described this a little bit in the piece, but if you can explain to our listeners, you are not um a guy who is physically imposing, and by your own admission you 're not somebody who had any particular you know, high football IQ, you'd had no idea what the defense was doing. So what were the coaches thinking and putting you under center?
1: Well, first of all, I mean, I first kind of got the job. I transferred to bass my sophomore year, and within a few games I was starting. Um, I talked about this in the piece. I basically had two incredibly lucky plays that made me seem like I, I had some sort of magic up my sleeve. Um, one was, I think, in the, the third game, the second or third game of the season, where I went in garbage time. We were down some like 50 to nothing. And I was, you know, all the backups were in. I had a play where I basically, you know, ran to one side. Uh, kind of a bunch of the defense kind of hit me all at once. And then I think, you know, looking, I remember looking, kind of looking at their faces and seeing them kind of stand up like they thought I was down. And uh, I knew I wasn't. I hadn't heard a whistle. So I kind of reversed field. And then slowly, you know, the defense realized that the play was still on. And I ended up running 43 yards for a touchdown. And I don't think anyone but me really realized that the defense had given up. I had that, you know, this is, that was our only points of the season so far. And then a few games later, they put me in um, my quarterback right before halftime. And I threw, I just overthrew uh, one receiver, Um, completely missed him. But I hit another receiver that I wasn't aiming for right in stride. um, And he ended up going 70 yards for a touchdown. So in, in, in like two plays, I had produced two touchdowns when we hadn't scored all season. And that was, you know, that was it for my for my magic. I mean, as soon as I became the starter, it was it was over. But it was just two kind of miraculous plays that got me in there. But I mean, the reason really I played was just because I could scramble. Um, I wasn't a particularly good runner. I wasn't a particularly good thrower. But I could kind of I could kind of survive back there. And and we had no line. And and we were just you know I mean the quarterback was running for his life. So it was more just I was <laughs> the most equipped to not die at the position I think more than anything, and you succeeded in that <laughs> yeah' I, in that aim. I, I, I see you know, one of the things i 'm proudest of, in spite of how bad I was and how bad we were is I, I never i never somehow never got hurt, which you know it was amazing to me, given i mean I would get sacked i mean i don 't have numbers for the, for this, but I mean I would get sacked four or five times a game at, at least more often than not, I would just throw it away in complete desperation, kind of immediately as soon as the play started. And we didn't throw that much. So, you know, that
2: was, uh, it wasn't good. So let's talk about the psychological aspect of this, because that seems like what, to the extent that this has weighed on you in your life, that is the part that did it. Um, You describe in the book, and I think we can all relate to this fact that the quarterback, especially... In high school, is a figure. It's an archetype of American culture. The coolest guy in the school. It's the best athlete in the school. And you uh, were playing quarterback at a place where the football team was was mocked. You did not have that kind of social status in the school. And apart from that, you just had the feeling that this big losing streak of the school was yours. That it was your fault. Can you describe kind of how that felt? At the time, and then, as you 've looked back on it over the last ten years or so,
1: yeah, um, I mean, at the time, knowing we were really bad and knowing that I was bad, it always did kind of feel like well maybe if maybe if I was really good, we could win you know maybe if i if I could really run a two minute drill or something, like you know maybe if I could really kind of run an offense uh, we 'd have a chance in terms of in terms of the school. Yeah, the football team was kind of a joke. I remember this was actually the year before I got there. Um, there was uh, a pep rally of sorts, and they and they, um, you know, every captain of every team stood up and and kind of gave a little speech. And I guess the what happened was, um, and this was during you know the streak had already started. The uh, football captain stood up and thanked all the other teams and wished them luck. And he forgot, just forgot the golf team. Like it wasn't intentional in the slight. The golf team captain stood up and said, basically, I noticed the football team forgot to mention us, and I'd just like to point out that we have more wins this year than the football team has points. And um, apparently the football coach at the time um, stood up and just started screaming at him Um, and then later had to apologize in front of the school. But yeah, I mean, when the golf captain, this captain of the golf team stands up and mocks the football team, you
2: know, you know you have a problem in in terms of like the hierarchy being upside down. So... The conclusion that you come to at the end of the piece, and you ask a really good question, um, which is what does losing every single game teach you that maybe going two and seven or three and eight wouldn't teach you? Because we all know the kind of banal cliche of you learn so much from falling down and um, you know having to get up again. But what did you conclude about the unique lesson that you get from losing every game and whether it actually taught you something and was worthwhile.
1: Yeah, it's. A, I mean, that's a question I, I've just, I wrestled with it for a long time because like you said, I mean, you know, you can lose just about every game and still get one and you're still gonna get a lot of those same lessons of, of perseverance um, about getting up and not giving up. But yeah, I think really what it comes down to is I learned how to, how to lose one, um, which I think is a very valuable skill that not enough people really really know is is how to how to lose with with no hope of of winning but i think the big thing is you know you you kind of when you when you lose every single game and you keep trying you learn to 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 do it because you love it and you learn to kind of um you know be this kind of Sisyphe- Sisyphe- sisyphean uh, existential struggle of, of trying your very best um regardless of the outcome i think that's that's pretty valuable. In a lot of ways, I, I didn't think so at the time. I mean, I just felt kind of ashamed to stick with it and to keep trying in spite of never getting that feeling. I, I think I mean, a lot of the quarterbacks I, t- I talked to and other people I talked to who lost every game, um, they all kind of viewed it as a positive. I mean, not at the time, but after the fact, they were all pretty reflective about it and thought it was, thought it was worth something.
2: Well, Josh, I hope that uh, this therapy session was valuable to you, that's going to be uh, $150. Yeah, yeah, that's... Uh, <laughs> you, know, I'll, you send me the bill. I'll, I'll, I'll figure it out. Thank you very much, Josh Keefe. The article is, I was the worst high school quarterback ever. Lessons from a winless career. And thank you for being Slate Plus members. Thank you. All right, it is time for After Balls, what we traditionally call After Balls. Mike has suggested this week in the interest of time in the interest of... Uh, the fact that we're here at the Slay Retreat, we do sports endorsements. Mm-hmm. What is your sports endorsement?
0: The pennant races. We sit through five months of baseball. It's maybe interesting, maybe not. But finally, we got games where every game, you know, some guy is going to break a bat. Tigers, Royals, Braves. I'm just going to list a bunch of teams who might make the playoffs. <laughs> <laughs> this is my sports endorsement. As the moment football hits, when everyone cares about that, is actually the moment we should care a little bit more about baseball.
3: I'm suffering a little bit of World Cup hangover, a little bit of missing the World Cup, the idea of international competition, loving the Premiership, excited about the MLS. Really am. I've been watching more MLS as they go toward the playoffs. But qualifying has begun for the 2016 European Championship, 2016 Euros. Portugal lost to Albania 1-0 on Sunday. The double-headed eagle rises strong, Mike Pesca, Excellent flag. I
2: know vexillologically you love Albania.
0: And only vexillologically. No, a lovely people, a lovely culture.
2: And I am excited to finally start tuning in, paying attention to the Basketball World Cup, which so far seems to have strictly been a venue for um, assessing how badly Derek Rose looks in his comeback. Um, but getting into the quarterfinals, the U.S. is going to play Slovenia, and it's very exciting for fans of Goran Dragic that he has a brother named Zoran Dragic. We'll see if the US can mess with the Zoran or not. He's actually played very well, he scored like 18 is points. His,
0: is he the younger brother? So is he Zoran Zagat Zoran Ball? Does he play Zoran Ball B? <laughs> what Let's would Zagich ball be? be also, the a one. scandal
3: at the uh, controversy at the uh, the FIBA World Cup. Australia accused of tanking, of losing to Angola purposefully so that they could avoid the United States until the quarterfinals.
2: It was a pretty wild accusation, considering they didn't play any of their good players and lost Angola by like fifty points. <laughs> shocking,
0: <laughs> and, shocking. And yet, yeah, also they let John Starks in, and he shot nineteen times and missed all his shots. <laughs>
2: All right. Sports endorsements. We'd love your feedback when we talked about today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes at itunes.com slash slate podcasts. And please leave us a comment and a rating when you're there. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook. Facebook.com slash listen is the page. Our intern is Chris Laskowski. Our producer is Mike Volo. Thank you, Mr. Volo, for letting us use your hotel room. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening.
1: It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash.
3: Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say.